The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett, and this week we're coming to you from the Guardian Edinburgh International Television Festival. On today's show, Kevin Spacey delivers a keynote McTaggart speech that wins the hearts of TV creatives everywhere. But did he tell them anything they didn't already know? Breaking Bad's creator, Vince Gilligan, and one of the show's stars, Laura Fraser, talk to us about making the hit show, and there are no spoilers, I promise. And we take a first look at footage from the Doctor Who special and Greg Davis' new sitcom on Channel 4, Man Down. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. It's that wonderful time of the year again when execs and creatives from across the world, mostly London and occasionally Salford, come together to talk about their craft on a carousel of drinks receptions. Punctuating the cocktails and smoothies is the McTaggart Lecture, this year presented by Hollywood A-lister Kevin Spacey. Let's hear a taster from the speech and then some reaction from the delegates. House of Cards, creatively, actually follows the model more often employed here in Great Britain. The television industry here has never really embraced the pilot season looked to by the networks in the United States as a worthwhile effort. And now look, of course, we went out to all the major networks with House of Cards and every single one was interested in the idea, but every single one wanted us to do a pilot first. And it, look, it wasn't out of arrogance that David Fincher and Bo Willem and I were not interested in having to audition the idea. It was that we wanted to start to tell a story that would take a long time to tell. We were creating a sophisticated, multi-layered story with complex characters who would reveal themselves over time and relationships that would need space to play out. And the obligation, of course, of doing a pilot from the writing perspective is that you have to spend about 45 minutes establishing all the characters and create arbitrary cliffhangers and basically generally prove that what you're setting out to do is going to work. Netflix was the only network that said, we believe in you. We've run our data, and it tells us that our audience would watch the series. We don't need you to do a pilot. How many do you want to do? <laughs> and we were like, um... <laughs> two seasons? Now, by comparison, last year, 113 pilots were made. 35 of those were chosen to go to air. 13 of those were renewed, but most of those are gone now. And this year, 146 pilots were shot. 56 have gone to series, but we don't know the outcome of those yet. But the cost of these pilots was somewhere between 300 and 400 million dollars a year. That makes our House of Cards deal for two seasons look really cost effective. <laughs> I know you're here, Netflix. I know you're here. Peter Fincham, director of television and ITV. What I liked about Kevin Spacey's McTaggart, and I, I'd like to think that in a sense it was as similar to my McTaggart five years ago, is that he struck an optimistic note about television, about creativity, about rising standards in television. He talked about the changing way we watch it. We've known that for years, it's still changing. But the fundamental good news is that the audience out there has a strong, enduring, and even growing taste for being told great stories, long-form stories, challenging stories. And that's, that's the challenge to us to keep doing that. And in that sense, I endorse everything that he said. I'm Andy Harris. Uh, I run Left Bank Pictures. And I have just been doing a very, very inspiring McTaggart 
I thought Kevin Spacey was a fantastic choice actually because he drew from his theatre experience, his acting experience and his television producing experience and to provide a great, great clarion call for people to uh, roll back on the, on the notes and to inspire the creatives. You know, the best series are undoubtedly the ones that are authored were the ones where writers have had a chance to basically do the work they wanted to do without it being gone through an industrial process. And it's a really, really important message that we need to be reminded of on a regular basis. Fuck me, I need a drink. <laughs> I'm Steve Hewlett. I write columns for The Guardian on occasion. Get paid, sod all. No, I also present the media show on Radio 4, and I still try to make television programmes. I thought Kevin Spacey's speech was great. Funnily enough, some of the stories that he told about network notes and how they didn't like things could be told about some famous dramas in British television history. The obvious one being Inspector Morse. Inspector Morse only ended up being commissioned because of the arcane ownership structure in ITV, which meant that Central Television, who were supporting it, were able to say to Granada who didn't want it, in that case, we'll put World in Action out on Sunday night. Really hard. So I think the key thing from that speech is, how does free-to-air television, whether funded by the licence fee or advertising, where a ratings obsession is a virtual inevitability, how does free-to-air television do talent? Because without it, there's no television worth having. That was, of course, Mr. Steve Hewlett and Andy Harris and Peter Fincham there. And joining me to talk McTaggart and more are our Media Talk panellists today. Uh, they are Boyd Hilton from Heat Magazine, Lisa Campbell of Broadcast Magazine, and Media Talk regular Maggie Brown. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. Given the identity of the uh, McTaggart lecturer this year, I should say you're the usual suspects. Oh, very good. Thank you very much. So it is quite literally the morning after the McTaggart before. Maggie, what did you make of it? What did you think of Mr. Spacey? Well, I was actually pleased that he was here, the first actor, and also a very upbeat, a positive as message, really, about the power of creative and, uh, you might say, original contribution to television. The thing that bothered me a bit was he's clearly here because he's got something to sell. Uh, he's got a, a, a second series of uh, House of Cards for Netflix. And I also felt that while he said there was this uh, golden age, which I think probably I would sort of agree with. The programmes that he mentioned were all very minority, paid for, basically cable programmes which originate in America. I know that uh, House of Cards obviously is is a a remake of a British uh, drama series. So I did feel that there was this element of, if you like, elitism about it. I wanted to sort of ask really how many people in the audience had had watched the the new House of Cards, and probably quite a lot in this audience, but only 1.5 million people um, have subscribed in the UK. So I think that the appeal, although it's growing, is is still quite, um, you might call minority or elitist. So I just felt that there was this element, if you like, of perhaps special pleading, although overall I really appreciated and I loved the, the delivery of the of the lecture. Uh, Lisa, what did you think? It was a very uh, feel-good speech and, uh, you know, every, everyone loved him and everyone loved what he had to say. But what, how much is he in the real world in the sense that he was saying broadcasters have to take more risks and they have to stick with programmes that aren't getting big ratings? But it's, it's easy to say that, but it's rather more difficult to do it if you're ITV or Channel 4. It's an easy line to hit out at the suits and a room full of creatives are going to absolutely love that. And, and they did. They gave him a standing ovation. And I can't remember the last time a McTaggart got a standing ovation and I've probably been here 10 years or something. But I'd agree with Maggie before performance wise it was absolutely perfect you know pitch pace pause power he had it all and the audience were just in his hand absolutely enthralled and you know he even 
ordered them to clap and you know in applause he was you know conducting everything I mean it was great it you know you were sitting there and thinking this is so inspiring for creatives and they all came away talking about how inspired they felt and you know power back to the creatives but when we all read it in the press office we were sort of saying you know where where's the news line here what, what do we write there was no there's no sort of radical thinking or blue sky thinking in there fairly obvious stuff really you know have a, have a bit of a dig at the execs you know no, no one's going to argue with that Boyd, it's good, it's good now, finally, to have someone's live them at McTaggart who might conceivably feature in the pages of Heat magazine. Yeah, at last. I went to them at the dinner, McTaggart dinner, as did you, John Plunko. And wasn't it, wasn't it the case, isn't it fun to see, you know, high-level TV executives of all kinds absolutely fawning over um, a Hollywood star, a Hollywood A-lister? I think it was as much either. as you as well. Yeah. But, you know, they're all enthralled to, why wouldn't you be? I mean, it's very exciting having a Hollywood A-lister in the middle of um, a restaurant in Edinburgh, let alone... There's a great improvement on Eric Schmidt of a couple of years Oh, God, ago. yeah, he was tedious, wasn't he? Was just, yeah. you know, it's very self-serving. Absolutely, yeah. But I, I agree with Maggie. I, I'm kind of in two minds, but on one level, you know, I mean, obviously, if he wasn't going to perform well, it would have been a disaster, because that's why he's booked, because he's a, he's a brilliant actor and a performer. But the speech itself was unbelievably... A obvious point. So we do it. Does that audience need to be told that you know Mad Men and Breaking Bad are really good shows and they've been brilliant? Do we need to be told that you know there's this new model of Netflix where people binge? You know, that, and that, yeah, actually, of course, still in reality, as Peter Fincher was just saying, I walked out of his session to do this. In fact, linear TV is still massive, particularly it's in this country. Only it's exactly, only two percent. So, and and I actually think, do you know what? I came I came away from it thinking. Love him as I do, Kevin Spacey. And I love all of those shows. He listed all those shows, which are right, premium cable shows, no network shows. Actually, the more interesting subject, because for me, the easiest job in global TV is the head of HBO. Because you've got, you, know, you can pretty much do whatever the F you want, you know. And you can commission the most high-end writers and actors and all these people to do brilliant, platinum, expensive TV. T- to come up with that kind of stuff for ITV... Is much harder, and when the demands of doing it for Channel Four are even more, even harder, one would say. So, I think the more interesting thing is the the jobs, the commissioners who have to deal with creatives and actually have to kind of twist and turn and 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 kind of get stuff that's going to work for ITV and Channel 4 out of creators than it is actually HBO and Showtime. I think it's much easier, the stuff he was talking about. So don't you think he should have also tried to at least pick up on the UK? What yes. are our golden age Absolutely, shows? Absolutely. Yeah. What are our golden age dramas? I was just in the Postman Taggart question and answer yeah. session and he was asked that very point and of course he didn't actually mention any no. which I found irritating. And he does live here. I mean he's been living That's here right, for years. Of course I know he's right uh, indeed. It's and like what have you I, yeah have you are you watching British stuff you know what do you you know it's like well clearly not. <laughs> I think he did clarify though that he wasn't just talking about television has only really come of age in the last decade and I think it was clear from this morning that he was talking about the US and and probably the film uh, world's view of television and the fact that talent are now interested in it whereas here we go way back I mean I think if you look at Cracker that's a perfect example of a flawed character complex long-running narrative um, you know we've been doing it for years I do think the speech had resonance in terms of the debate that's going on at the moment about interference in the creative process and so although he was talking about the US network bosses and all the notes and you know we all we famously extensive notes and it pisses everyone off but here it's it's a very live debate and there's obviously mm. the commissioning session coming up later and it'll be really interesting to see how every channel boss deals with some of the concerns in in that survey i think another thing that was really interesting though about the about the speech was about ratings and i think he's right that there is a big challenge for the free to air uh, broadcasters who are a slave to to the rating system and 
you know, of course, Sky's been saying for years the subscription model is the future, and uh, you know, we don't have to worry about about the ratings. We've got creative freedom, therefore. But it sort of takes a Hollywood actor because you know, you, well, Sky would say that, wouldn't they? But now everyone's going, oh yeah, you know, actually, that's a good point. So. I mean, you can't tell these people what to talk about, but I was, I was in the middle of it. I think a much more interesting example than all of these things it's talking about is a show like Hannibal, which is made for NBC, and NBC is doing really badly in the last few years in America, and that was a huge risk, and it was an incredibly edgy, difficult show with a maverick creative creator at the, at the heart of it. Talk about something like that, and, the, and the, was that compromised or wasn't it? How does that work? How, how come it's been recommissioned even though it didn't even do that well? So those examples are more interesting to me than, you know, all the all Breaking Bad, you know, yeah, those things which are watched, as Maggie said, I watched by hardly anyone in the real world apart from the people here at the end of a tv festival people like us but out there you know doing a big show for nbc even in america or of course itv here or bbc here it's much harder and of course remember he was actually flogging house of cards yeah not as a cold project the scripts were already made that we've we've yeah. had the example of british television is actually a machiavellian take on politics which could really apply to Absolutely, any country yeah. and yeah. in any century it could apply to yeah. egypt at the yeah. moment so therefore i don't actually think it was as risky or as no. different as he was kind of, it was no, quite a safe yeah. bet for everything having said all of that look at luther we have a, a yeah. big star in a very edgy drama that is a perfect example it seems to me of what might be called our golden age our problem is that the budgets for drama unlike the american networks are going down yeah. and the question is now how do you sustain and improve and actually give the audience what it would like to have which is more aspirational and better cast dramas but on budgets which have to be somehow negotiated with co-producers. House of Cards is a bit of an anomaly because it's got you know the big name talent the director and and, and the producers the rest of Netflix is um Hemlock Grove. I mean, who's talking about that? And Orange is the new black. Which was good as well. Though. Was, good. was good it's as good well, show. but um, but apparently, I mean, that's that's done better than House of Cards, right, and, and it's and it's female skewing. Apparently, the whole of Netflix is is female skewing. But they sort of commission by algorithm. You know, apparently they acquire shows and they never look at tapes. They just go, how many countries is it sold to? Great, we'll have it. And they know the demographics so well. Um, so really, yeah. where is the risk taking and creativity there? And with Netflix, Maggie, where's the transparency? No one really knows. It's been a great PR coup for them and uh, you know I've said Netflix more recently than I've said um, can I have a bottle of Peroni please Absolutely. but um, uh, nobody really knows uh, how they're know. doing how many people are watching and 1.5 million subs in the UK and what nearly 40 million worldwide but will they still be here in five no, years time I just, sat, I just sat next to somebody who said to me uh, did you watch it and I said no and she said well I just took out a six pound subscription to watch it just for a month so I mean there must be a lot of churn going on when there oh, is especially this one off thing at the moment, yeah. yes, exactly. and of course, the other but, but you know let's face it that there should be transparency but that usually comes when networks or media companies feel that they've reached a safer point and for a long time Sky was very careful about what it told us for example on um, the pay-per-view one-off events and then they change and relax as they become established and successful so we I have to assume that they're in some kind of game where they're accruing subscriptions faster than they're they're spending on new product. Well, Kevin Spacey, American beauty that he is. He wasn't the only person speaking at the uh, Edinburgh TV Festival this week. We also heard from Channel 4 Chief Creative Officer Jay Hunt. Here's what she had to say about Channel 5. Do you feel relaxed or does it infuriate you that Channel 5 beat you for a week at one point and, be- and it's beaten I mean, you it's sometimes? It's hugely dull this and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But, I mean, Channel 5 didn't beat us for a week by any measure that the industry actually recognises. Right. But to be blunt, if I were a PR at Channel 5 and I'd found a way that if I took out all of the hours between midnight and six o'clock in the morning and you squinted and you turned your head on the side, then you sort of beat us, I might have done it too so fair, <laughs> fair 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 play to them but you know 
normal services resumed, we have a huge margin between us and, and Channel 5. I mean, it's worth remembering that in any given week, E4 frequently outperforms Channel 5, particularly for young audiences or for young audiences. So I'm not hugely uh, concerned about that. I don't know who that was interviewing Jay Hunt, but uh, he did a fantastic job. But boy, it sounded steady, a bit like you. Steady on. Yeah, that was me. So what did, what did Jay have to say? She was. Um, um, well, this is the background, of course, that Channel 4 was beaten uh, across an entire week in the ratings for the first time in its history by Channel 5. Well, she denied that. She, so her, I mean, this was very complicated, really, and rather tedious. But uh, she said that, actually, if you took the whole schedule, um, it didn't. The Channel 5 didn't beat it. So Channel 5 had to take out, you know, morning and late night or something. And, you know, so, so there's some controversy. Where the, lies, damn lies, and, exactly. and plus one channel. But, I mean, her main, I mean, for me, the, the incredible thing about it, well, first of all, it was absolutely packed. I mean, it was, it was like, the most crowded controlled session ever. I don't think that was down to me. And I think it was interesting come, come. that hundreds of people were there, presumably on the assumption that she'd have some kind of meltdown or something. I don't know. And I think there's, you know, there's this been whole controversy with, in broadcast about um, their relationship with the Indies and how they treat Indies and all of that. There was the survey that came out yesterday, that morning, um, which I talked to her about. So she's, she seems to be the channel controller that seems to be under the most pressure or the most controversial figure among the channel controllers. So, and last year, she, she uh, you know, reportedly, and I think it's probably true, didn't really get on that well with Kirsty Young when she did. So I felt, I suddenly felt, you know, I'm, I did all my homework and everything. I was thinking, oh, these hundreds of people waiting for me to like, have a real go. It was all a bit weird. But I think in the end, you know, she's kind of, she dealt with all, all the questions I had asked her. But still, I, I get the feeling that Indies are, a lot of people out there are kind of annoyed and frustrated about the way Channel 4 deals with them. Tough year for Jay Hunt, of course, but she came, she came out fighting. Do you get a sense that, you know, the sort of the tide is turning a bit? Or they had quite an impressive... Uh showreel to play at their, um, their, their Edinburgh dinner. Yeah, and there, there were some really interesting commissions that, that she announced. I mean, the, the Danny Boyle-directed police drama. There's an Indian period drama, which sounds brilliant, uh, which is, I think, Simon Curtis is execing that. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's some great stuff that uh, on the slate. They've acquired S.H.I.E.L.D. Boyd's right. I mean, not only were there hundreds in the room, there were also about 100 people, myself included, who couldn't get in. I don't think everyone was there to hear about the latest commissions. They were they were sort of, I don't know, it was a bit a bit like a lynch mob, or, you know, yeah. baying for blood or something. And, and it's, last oh. year, she was so rude to Peter York, the, the style guru who invented the Sloan Ranger and sort of literally sort of rather sh- shut him up. And that was almost the end of the session. So oh, it really? was very, very edgy last year. And she actually made a ref- reference to it saying... Last year I was very tense because it was the onset of the Paralympics, you know, and, and this was a big gamble for Channel 4. I thought she was um, uh, gave a much more controlled performance mm. this year. Perhaps it was your, uh, your, your not gentle question, <laughs> but your, your logical questioning. Yeah. Um, what, one of the problems of Channel 4 really is that it does have these stellar moments like the uh, Richard III, uh, you know, live exhumation. Uh, it does have some very interesting good things the return of um, educating what it be educating Yorkshire there are lots of gems Mm. but what actually happens is that it doesn't have the sustaining schedule underneath it the eight o'clocks the nine Mm. o'clocks that come in and really build audiences and that's one of its key that's the key challenge and I, I suspect the kind of Danny Boyle thing that they're trying to do these are nine o'clock dramas. She spoke too about getting new comedies to come into the centre of the schedule, not just in the fringes, that they should be broad laughs. And that's her challenge now, yeah. to build something yeah. that is just more credible. But what they're also doing, I think, is reverting to historic Channel 4, which is buying cheap in America or maybe in Switzerland or France, wherever 
I mean, I'm talking about the return, for example, maybe Homeland too, mm. so that you actually don't have to lay out on original commissions, uh, but you get the advertising in. And they have to do that. Yeah, Absolutely. and they've got the Joss Whedon, uh, the sort of, what is it, the Agents Avengers? Of Shield, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. Yeah. Is that going on E4, though? Is no, I think it's Channel 4. Channel I think, 4, I think. I mean, I, I think, I think Maggie's right. I think, I genuinely think, I mean, I, I do feel, I can't justify myself, but I was... You know, my, I'm never going to be Paxman with her. You know, I'm not. I can't. I'm not that type of person. So I was having a natural conversation with her. She speaks very quickly, by the way. So half part of me is because when you do those conversations, they insist on having an earpiece in your ear. This is very tedious, but they do. So part of me is like, I have to listen to what the hell she's saying. She speaks so quickly, and the other is listening to the guy in my ear. But anyway, I think drama—they're doing brilliantly. I think Piers Wango, who's in charge of the drama, has been there for I don't know over a year now. And indies have got really good things to say exactly. about the drama department. Exactly. So drama is for me is like a, a high point for, for a long time for Channel Four. Top top boys, great. Utopia was genuinely brilliant. They recommissioned it. Um, all kinds of stuff, great, all, all great. Nothing bad, really. But comedy, and I did say this too, has been a very fallow for like about a year or, or more than that. And scripted Friday comedy, night no Friday night, yeah. Popping, and the eight nine o'clock, the, the format yeah. of the features. Yeah. And don't you think the scheduling is strange? I mean, Southcliff, they kind of did a double, uh, you know, two nights, and yeah. then they sort of sprinkled yeah. it around. And I find it very strange that they're putting out so much good drama in in, in August. Well, that's enough Channel 4 for now. It always seems to be in the TV industry. There's always one channel which is under the cosh. Previously, it was ITV. It's been Channel 4 for a while now. So we wait and find out who it will be next year. Your predictions? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right. Uh, next up, it's uh, Doctor Who. And we had to, we had a sneaky peek of uh, what's coming next. Yeah, it was very exciting. So the, 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 there was a clash, Edinburgh t- classic TV festival clash between Charlotte Moore, the new head controller of BBC One, and um, Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan. Now, normally, I love Breaking Bad, obviously, as every, everyone in the media does. Um, and I felt I have to go and see... Um, the, the creator of this, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. And yet suddenly, sneakily, someone told me from the BBC secretly that there was going to be an exclusive Doctor Who clip at the end of the thing. So I thought, oh, I've got because I'm a Doctor Who geek, a massive Doctor Who geek. And this was not going to be online and they wouldn't show it again. So literally the only way to see this this minute and a half. Old school. Old school was to go to the thing. So I missed Gilligan. I missed Breaking Bad for that. And I have to say, it was really exciting and, and brilliant. And you got to see um, David Tennant, Matt Smith, and John Hurt. So John Hurt's a doctor. We don't really know w- in what it means. But we got to see them all acting together and joking together and bouncing off each other. And it looks rather fantastic if you're a Who geek like me. Big year for Doctor Who. Uh, Lisa, but in one sense also, it's had a, it's had a troubled uh, time, hasn't it? Ratings are down; it's not quite got the sort of uh, the buzz about it that they used to be. So this kind of anniversary is coming; it couldn't come quick enough, really. Yeah, I, th- I think there's so much um, anticipation for the fiftieth. I think that's really going to give it a shot in the arm, and then with the new Doctor, maybe we'll get we'll get a new audience as well. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing Peter Capaldi and what, what he does with that. And, and you know, supposedly he's going to be a more difficult Doctor, and um, you know, a bit sort of the Tom Baker style. And I, I think uh, I'll tune in for that. A doctor who's older than me. I thought it would never happen, Boyd. And no, and it's, and it's a complete maverick move. When I interviewed Stephen Moffat um, here, um, when Matt Smith had just been confirmed, I think, and he told me on stage in front of everyone, these days Doctor Who's got to be a young action hero because the audience is skews young and they expect a kind of someone who can run around and be sexy and handsome and all of that. And then, of course, I reminded him of this recently when I saw him the other day on the set of Sherlock. And I said, you told me I had to be a young action hero. And he went, Boyd, I make these things up all the time <laughs> to justify my decision. So I thought, oh, yeah, fine. Christopher was probably older than you. He, he was Doctor Who when it came back. So it isn't necessarily the case that you always have to have young, Absolutely. angular, yeah. kind of, you know, fey, good-looking kind of doctors. I mean, Capaldi's going to be much more scary. This is pretty obvious. And it does need toughening up. And also, I think, a few plots. Well, I think we've discussed this before that maybe I can understand. 
Yeah, well, boy, you're a self-confessed Doctor Who geek. Yeah. Was I fair saying that? Has it had a bit, a bit of a tough time? Has it gone off the board? No, I think it's not fair. There's a whole myth about Doctor Who. So if you look overnight, I mean, this is a whole, this is a whole tedious subject, but I am a ratings geek. If you look, You're in the right place. Yeah. If you, the consolidated <laughs> figures for Doctor Who are the same week in, week out, year in, week out. It always gets about 8 million, no matter what happens. You can get 5 million in the overnight, and, and you get a front-page story in somewhere, in one of the tabloids or something, saying, oh, it's, it's gone downhill, everyone hates it, it's too complicated, everyone hates Stephen Moffat. And then two weeks later, you get the final figure and it's always around seven and a half, eight million and then more and millions more are watching on iPlay and all of that. I sound like I'm PRing it but it genuinely annoys me that there's this myth that it's declining in any way. In fact, it's bigger and bigger and it's now huge in America. It's on the cover of Entertainment Weekly like two or three times. They're biggest selling issues. It's getting bigger. It's actually a much bigger phenomenon here and globally than ever before and I think Moffat's done a brilliant job. It is complicated. You know, it's incredibly ambitious and bold Kids love it. Adults have a problem with the complicated stories, but I think, you know, it's like 12-year-old kids can kind of understand and go with what he's trying to do. And it's single-handedly responsible for keeping the Radio Times in business. Totally. Absolutely. Every, every cover of the Radio Times, <laughs> massive. Because people absolutely love it. I think, you know, there's a level of engagement with a show like that that is much higher than, you know, I don't know, some cop show, you know, on ITV at 9 o'clock on a Thursday. So the pressure is much greater. It's much bigger news story if there's a perceived decline. I think the decline is a myth. Well, thank you very much, Wood. That's enough, Doctor Who. Now, before we uh, let you go, uh, maybe rush back to the end of the Peter Fincham session, an, an entirely unfair challenge. Is there, um, and one for which I've not prepared you, but is, is there one sort of learning that you're taking away from this year's uh, TV festival? Maggie. Well, actually, I, I did learn one thing that really made me laugh, and it is that the first local TV station to go on air has rebranded itself as Estuary TV without any kind of blush. And it's not because it's Essex or anything or the Thames, it's because it's actually... Humber. And it just made me laugh out loud. I just thought this is just the funniest thing I've heard, that anybody would want to have an aspirational new TV station called Estuary TV. Uh, Boyd, over to you. Uh, I've learned that, because I've I've hosted two controller sessions, I've watched two more, that they're actually... I don't. I'm not slagging off the whole idea of them. They're semi pointless, like because the controllers are now. Watch yourself. I'm sorry. No, I mean I love doing it. I love watching it. But when it comes down to no, and this is why though, just my explanation. The controllers are now so good at deflecting all of the things you could throw at them, and you could throw anything at them. You could throw the fact that their ratings are down, you know, their shares down, and they'll go, oh, no, but you look at this thing, and they've got stats. They're just politicians, you know. They're great at kind of, they're kind of Teflon, good, you know, they're all, the reason they are doing those jobs is partly because they love TV and they, they're quite good at creating good, commissioning good stuff and they can reckon, they've got quite good taste hopefully, but do you know what, they're all really good at being political and, and, and deflecting whatever hard questions you supposedly try and throw at them. And uh, Lisa, final word to you. I've learnt not to have two hours sleep and then attempt to sound articulate on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, uh, my thanks to you all, Mr. Boyd Hilton and Lisa Campbell and to Maggie Brown. Now, Charlie Brooker was at the festival on Thursday to talk to Breaking Bad's Vince Gilligan. More on that later. But before that, Media Talk producer Matt Hill got a few words from Brooker, some of them very sweary, about his Sky One comedy, A Touch of Cloth. Yeah, Touch of Cloth, season two, or case two, I guess you could call it. It's not really a season, it's two episodes. Yeah, that's on Sunday, isn't it? 25th. So, you know, spoof of crime procedurals. Hopefully a good one, hopefully people enjoy it. And then we've got a third one of those as well, because we shot two back to back. But the third one won't go out until the apocalypse. Where do you see it going? Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, like, I think, really, you could kind of keep going forever. Whether you should is a different question. It's a question for probably not me to answer. I'd probably just keep doing them. Because there's so many things that you can parody 
in that genre, I think it'd be quite a long time before you totally exhausted all the possibilities. I mean, for the first one, we were we were parodying the sort of dark serial killer end of things. In this one, it's uh, it's a bank heist. And then in the third one, it's a series of killings that gets very close to home. So you could potentially carry on indefinitely or until mankind meets its inevitable violent and bloody end. Now, you're not doing your uh, Guardian column at the moment. No, uh, and I think you... Uh it was a partial rebuttal uh, in a tweet of a Private Eye article about yeah. it. Yeah, the Private Eye story was like a weird one where it wasn't true, <laughs> basically, no. Because I'd been planning for a while to wind down the column. I was sort of just getting fed up with writing a column every week, basically. That was the problem. I was, I was doing it on top of doing everything else. I was doing a lot of things at the same time. So, like, last year there was a point where I was doing two Touch of Cloths back-to-back and I was doing Black Mirror... And I was in preparation for, like, the end of year wipe. And I was writing a weekly column at the same time. And I thought, I don't know, I've become increasingly fed up with the amount of stuff that's just there's just babble and chat and noise around generally. I thought, why am I bothering to, to keep piling letters and words onto this endless fucking pile of talk that we humans insist on gabbing away out of our fucking mouths why am i adding to that why and then i thought that's not a healthy thought to have maybe you're writing too often so i'm and i haven't left the guy that was the other thing it, was, it said it's it's not sort of about wandering off and thinking oh oh it's not fair people write nasty things under a column or anything like that. it was more i just thought i fed up with writing all the time so i'm coming back and i'm right i'll be writing like fortnightly or monthly but it'll be exactly the same sort of stuff and it'll have comments underneath it calling me a not as funny as he used to be cunt or whatever um, or saying I've got shit hair so it's just going to be less regular but I'm not sure quite when I'm going to start again but I am starting again That was Charlie Brooker talking to Media Talk producer Matt Hill It's good to see him getting out and about a bit Right, this is the time of the show when I normally say it's time to talk TV, but I guess the TV festival has kind of made that redundant, so it's time to talk even more TV with Rebecca Nicholson. Rebecca, hello. Hello. Like meta-TV. Meta-TV. Talk TV on no TV. It doesn't even work as an analogy. Well, that's all right. You're, you're at home here uh, if it's not working. Uh, now, this is your first festival, by it all is. accounts. It is. Explain it to someone who's never been like you until three days ago. I keep thinking that it's like it's just a giant work conference. It's the sort of place where it looks like, you know, Dan from HR is going to get off with Sue from Accounts in the cupboard. And I'm sure that's going on. I really? Seen it. I, can't, I can't report on this faithfully. But it feels like that kind of thing, and there's lots of interesting, different things happening. So I've sat in on some curiously varied panels from, uh, yeah, one about politics, one about poverty porn, one about cakes. And we should explain, I think actually Dan from HR, I think, who is entirely fictional in case there really is a Dan from HR, is in the room because we're surrounded by lots of uh, groovy looking young people drinking champagne, not us, and having uh, canapes. I'm, I'm breaking my record of being drunk on Guardian podcasts today by having a cup of tea. Being surrounded by people who are drunk. Being surrounded by people who are drunk instead. Um, yes, it's one. Of, this is the other thing that there are a few of. There are a few of these events where somebody will ply you with either free tea or free booze. This is a boozy one. I've had a lot of the tea. It's hard work as well, which I add. Right. Okay. Unusually, <laughs> for people who come to the TV festival, uh, you've seen some TV. I've seen one TV. There's been a real lack of screenings. That's the other thing that surprised me. I thought we'd get more actual TV. I think um, there have been more in the past, but you're right, yeah. It's a distinct lack of them year. this year. Although yeah. we did see the live Bake Off, but I'm, I'm sure you've discussed so, that already. what was the show you saw? 
I saw Man Down. I run a club night called Man Down, so this was quite amusing. That's not a plug, we're not really doing it at the moment, but this is quite amusing for me that someone has now made a TV show called Man Down. And it's Greg Davis, who is the head teacher in The Inbetweeners and a stand-up comic. He's written and is starring in his own vehicle, and they showed us the first two episodes of it. Rick Mayle plays his dad, which is a great bit of casting because he looks like Rick Mayle. Rick Mayle looks like he could be his dad. And that makes you feel old as well, the fact that Rick Mayle is playing me, a grown man's dad. It makes me feel a bit old that, yeah, he's playing a 40-year-old man's dad. But I don't know how old Rick Mayle is. He, he looks the part. And this is on Channel 4. Is it any good? It's on Channel 4. Yes, I thought it was, it was funny in a way that I didn't expect it to be. It's quite misanthropic. It's very dark in places. And it's silly. It's quite bottom-like. There's a lot of really daft humour in it and some things that are just excruciating to watch but the whole premise of it is that he is kind of a loser who lives in the house uh, next to his parents and everything falls apart in the first episode his girlfriend leaves him his you know, work's not going well and this apparently continues throughout the whole run and getting more and more man um, really down man really very down indeed but it made me laugh there weren't as many belly laughs as I had expected but um, it was very funny in a sort of sticks with you way and bleak too. There are some jokes. There's a, I don't want to give it away, but there's a joke involving a guinea pig that really had me wincing. Oh, so well, I you look go. forward to that. Yeah. I look forward to that. And, uh, I'm not now, sure you should look forward to it. That's all I'm saying. Rebecca, if I said to you, who do you think is going to win Channel of the Year in Edinburgh this year, the, the annual prize giving? Which, which terrestrial broadcast? Oh, I'm, old, I'm so old school. Which one of the big five channels would you give Channel of the Year to? And I'll let you know if you guessed it right. Even though they've had what could be described as a tricky time of it lately, Channel 4, obviously the this narrative is that ratings are down and there was that time that Channel 5 beat them slightly by a couple of viewers or whatever it was. I think Channel 4 has come up with some of the most original broadcasting this year and has had some really great acquisitions. Two of my favourite shows probably of the year were on Channel 4, Utopia I loved and The Returned I loved. So on the basis of that, I'm going to go with Channel 4. I'm well, going to the, go with The Underdog. But the Nicholson Award goes to Channel 4, but yep. I can reveal, which hasn't been revealed, but will have been revealed by the time you hear this, ITV. Really? Based on... Broadchurch. <laughs> and Vicious. <laughs> but mostly Vicious. <laughs> thank goodness it wasn't BBC2. Nothing against BBC2, but I think they've won the awards since, um, since the Jurassic era. So, so this is really a break in tradition. Good, for, good that someone else won, yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Channel 4, for the uh, Rebecca Nicholson Award, which is much more prestigious it's much more than presi- anything it's the, the first festival one and possibly will be the only one. But, you know, the sentiment was there. Next year, you ask me about the John Plunkett Award. Yeah, and yeah. We'll, we'll just rotate it. Long overdue. Rebecca Nicholson, back to your canapes. <laughs> Hi, this is Vince Gilligan, creator of the TV show Breaking Bad, and I'm here in beautiful Edinburgh, to attend a master class that will be moderated by Charlie Brooker. Do you sort of over, do you have your fingers in everything down to, do you choose the typeface for the end credits? Do you, you know, is, yeah. are you that obsessive? Pretty much, and I, honestly, I think, and I think probably plenty of folks in this audience uh, can speak to this who, 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 who do this job. I'm sure if there are folks in the audience who, who run shows in the, in the UK, and uh, they, they would probably second this. It's a, it's a kind of job that attracts uh, control freaks. <laughs> I'm definitely, that would definitely describe me. My name's Laura Fraser and I play Lydia, Redark Quail, in Breaking Bad. He keeps telling everyone he's a control freak, but I, I don't see that. I suppose I, I, I felt it a little bit when I first started, because when I went in to get a costume fitting, um, 
it was like being a model because you had to go in front of this whole rig that they'd set up, pictures taken of every outfit that you tried on. Um, it was just sent to Vince, Vince would pick it and then you wouldn't know what you were wearing until the day you got on set. So you had no say. So I thought, well, that is quite control freaky. <laughs> so he maybe he is. I learned everything that I know about producing and writing for TV from the X-Files. I worked on that show for seven years, seven of the nine years it was on. The, the very structure of Breaking Bad is cobbled, is, is gleaned from or stolen, if you will, from, from the X-Files. The X-Files was a structure that, that had a teaser and then four acts. The teaser, that little that little bit before the title sequence that hooked you into the show, and then after the title sequence, you'd have four acts of story, each one ending with a cliffhanger. That's exactly, if you look closely, that's exactly the same uh, shape and form that uh, Breaking Bad has. I, I took that directly from the X-Files. I felt like Lydia could have been a man or a woman, and originally it was written as a man, and one of the female writers told me that she said, well, why can't this be a woman? And... As is often the case, it turns out, you know, when it is, it's written for a man and it's just the story they're telling and it's not because she's a woman or, you know, it's just it's just part of the plot and it's just a wonderful invention. Um, she, you know, such a complex character and totally absurd and demented um, as she's become. I feel incredibly lucky as, you know, an actress that I got to play such a vivid character. Britain is where it's at in the future, it seems to me, especially in terms of American TV, because the shows uh, you folks create here get get uh, bought up by the studios and the networks uh, back in the States, and, and um, definitely this is a, a wellspring, of, of obviously, of talent and of good ideas and creativity. And we are hoping to create a spin-off series, a spin-off uh, from the show, centered around our dirty lawyer character, man named Saul Goodman who's played by the wonderful actor Bob Odenkirk and we are hoping that uh, we can get this show on the air I, I would think sometime next year sometime in 2014. One of my writers in Breaking Bad the gentleman who actually created the character Saul Goodman a guy named Peter Gould he and I are working on it trying to get it going and uh, knock on wood we'll we'll get this thing going. That was Vince Gilligan of course and Laura Fraser. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to all our guests, who are Maggie Brown, Lisa Campbell, Boyd Hilton, Vince Gilligan, Laura Fraser, Charlie Brooker, and Rebecca Nicholson. My goodness, it's like a cast list from EastEnders. My name's John Plunkett, and Media Talk is produced and occasionally presented by Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.